Chapter Six of the Czar's Spy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Czar's Spy by William Lequeux. Chapter Six: The Gathering of the Clouds. Mister Gregg exclaimed the girl with agitation as she put forth her black-gloved hand. I, I suppose you know. You've heard all about the discovery today up at the wood. I need not tell you anything about it. Yes, Miss Lithcourt, I only wish you would tell me about it, I said gravely, inviting her to a chair and seating myself. I've heard some extraordinary story about a man being found dead, but I've been in Dumfries nearly all day. Who is the man? Ah, that we don't know, she replied, pale-faced and anxious. Her attitude was as though she wished to confide in me, and yet still hesitated to do so. "'You've been waiting for me quite a long time,' Davis tells me. "'I regret that you should have done this. If you had left word that you wished to see me, I would have come over to you at once. No, I wanted to see you alone. That's the reason I am here. They must not know at home that I've been over here, so I purposely asked the man not to announce me to your aunt.' "'You want to see me privately,' I said in a low, earnest voice. "'Why, is there any service I can render you?' "'Yes, a very great one,' she responded with quick eagerness. "'I—well, the fact is, I have summoned courage to come to you and beg of you to help me. I am in great distress, and I have not a single friend whom I can trust, in whom I can confide.' "'I shall esteem it the highest honor if you will trust me.' I said in deep earnestness. I can only assure you that I will remain loyal to your interests and to yourself. Ah, I believe you will, Mr. Gregg, she declared with enthusiasm, her large dark eyes turned upon me, the eyes of a woman in sheer and bitter despair. Her face was perfect, one of the most handsome I had ever gazed upon. The more I saw of her, the greater was the fascination she held over me. A silence fell between us as she sat with her gloved hands lying idly in her lap. Her lips moved nervously, but no sound came from them, so agitated was she, so eager to tell me something, and yet at the same time reluctant to take me into her confidence. Well, I asked at last in a low voice, I am quite ready to render you any service, if you will only command me. Ah, but I fear what I will require will strike you as so unusual you will hesitate to act when I explain what service I require of you, she said doubtfully. I cannot tell you until I hear your wishes, I said, smiling, and yet puzzled at her attitude. It concerns the terrible discovery made up in Rannoch Wood, she said in a hoarse, nervous voice at last. That unknown man was murdered, stabbed to the heart. Well? Well, she said scarcely above a whisper, I have suspicions. Of the murdered man's identity? No, of the assassin. I glanced at her sharply and saw the intense look in her dark, wide-open eyes. You believe you know who dealt the blow? I have a suspicion, that is all. Only I want you to help me, if you will. Most certainly, I responded but if you believe you know the assassin you probably know something of the victim, only that he looked like a foreigner. Then you have seen him? I exclaimed, much surprised. My remark caused her to hold her breath for an instant, 
Then she answered, rather lamely, it seemed to me, I saw him when the keepers brought the body to the castle. Now, according to the account I had heard, the police had conveyed the dead man direct from the wood into Dumfries. Was it possible, therefore, that she had seen Olinto before he met with his sudden end? I feared to press her for an explanation at that moment, but nevertheless the admission that she had seen him struck me as a very peculiar fact. "'You judge him to be a foreigner,' I remarked as casually as I could. "'From his features and complexion I guessed him to be Italian,' she responded quickly, at which I pretended to express surprise. I saw him after the keepers had found him. Besides, she went on, the stiletto was evidently an Italian one, which would almost make it appear that a foreigner was the assassin. Is that your own suspicion? No. Why? She hesitated a moment, then in a low, eager voice she said, Because I have already seen that three-edged knife in another person's possession. That's pretty strong evidence, I declared. The person in question will have to prove that he was not in Rannoch Wood last evening at nightfall. How do you know it was done at nightfall? she asked quickly, with some surprise, half rising from her chair. I merely surmised that it was, I responded, inwardly blaming myself for my ill-timed admission. Ah, she said with a slight sigh, there is more mystery in this affair than we have yet discovered, Mr. Gregg. What, I wonder, brought the unfortunate young man up into our wood? An appointment, without a doubt. But with whom? She shook her head, saying, My father often goes to that spot to shoot pigeon in the evening. He told us so at luncheon today. How fortunate he was not there last night, or he might be suspected. Yes, I said, it is a very fortunate circumstance, for it cannot be in a pleasant experience to be under suspicion of being an assassin. He was at home last night, was he? I added casually. Of course. Don't you recollect that when you called he chatted with you? I did some typewriting for him in the study, and we were together all the afternoon, or at least till nearly five o'clock, when we went out into the hall to tea. Then what is your theory regarding the affair? I inquired, rather puzzled why she should so decisively prove an alibi for her father. It seems certain that the poor fellow went to the wood by appointment and was killed. But have you been up to the spot since the finding of the body? No, have you? Yes, the affair interested me, and as soon as I recognized the old Italian knife in the hand of the keeper, I went up there and looked about. I am glad I did so, for I found something which seems to have escaped the notice of the detectives. And what's that? I asked eagerly. Why, about three yards from the pool of blood where the unfortunate foreigner was found is another small pool of blood where the grass and ferns around are all crushed down as though there had been a struggle there. There may have been a struggle at that spot, and the man may have staggered some distance before he fell dead. Not if he had been struck in the heart, as they say. He would fall, would he not? she suggested. No, the police seem very dense and this plain fact has not yet occurred to them. Their theory is the same as what you suggest. But my own is something quite different, Mr. Gregg. I believe that a second person also fell a victim, she added in a low, distinct tone. I gazed at her open mouth. Did she, I wonder, know the actual truth? Was she aware that the woman who had fallen there had disappeared? 
"'A second person!' I echoed, as though in surprise. "'Then do you believe that a double murder was committed?' "'I draw my own conclusion from the fact that the young man, on being struck in the heart, could not have gone such a distance as that which separates the one mark from the other. But he might have been slightly wounded, on the hand or in the face at first, and then at the spot where he was found struck fatally, I suggested. She shook her head dubiously, but made no reply to my argument. Her confidence in her own surmises made it quite apparent that by some unknown means she was aware of the second victim. Indeed, a few moments later she said to me, it is for this reason, Mr. Gregg, that I have sought you in confidence. Nobody must know that I have come here to you, or they would suspect, and if suspicion fell upon me it would bring upon me a fate worse than death. Remember, therefore, that my future is entirely in your hands. I don't quite understand, I said, rising and standing before her in the fading twilight, while the rain drove upon the old diamond window-panes but I can only assure you that whatever confidence you repose in me I shall never abuse, Miss Lythcourt. I know, I know, she said quickly. I trust you in this matter implicitly. I have come to you for many reasons, chief of them being that if a second victim has fallen beneath the hand of the assassin, it is, I know, a woman. A woman? Whom? At present I cannot tell you. I must first establish the true facts. If this woman were really stricken down, then her body lies concealed somewhere in the vicinity. We must find it and bring home the crime to the guilty one. But if we succeed in finding it, could we place our hand upon the assassin? I asked, looking straight at her. If we find it, the crime would then tell its own tale. It would convict the person in whose hand I have seen that fatal weapon, was her clear, bold answer." "'Then you wish me to assist you in this search, Miss Leithcourt,' I said, wondering if her suspicions rested upon that mysterious yachtsman, Philip Hornby, the man to whom she was engaged. "'Yes, I would beg of you to do your utmost in secret to endeavor to discover the body of the second victim. It is a woman, of that I am certain. Find her, and we shall then be able to bring the crime home to the assassin.' "'But my search may bring suspicion upon me,' I remarked. "'It will be difficult to examine the whole wood without arousing the curiosity of somebody, the keeper or the police.' "'I have already thought of that,' she said. "'I will pretend to-morrow to lose this watch-bracelet in the wood.' And she held up her slim wrist to show me the little enameled watch set in her bracelet. "'Then you and I will search for it diligently, and the police will never suspect the real reason of our investigation.' Tomorrow I shall write to you, telling you about my loss, and you will come over to Rannoch and offer to help me. I was silent for a moment. Is Mr. Woodruff back at the castle? I heard he was to return today. No, I had a letter from him from Bordeaux a week ago. He is still on the continent. I believe indeed he has gone to Russia, where he sometimes has business. I asked you the question, Miss Muriel, because I thought if Mr. Woodruff were here he might object to our searching in company, I explained, smiling. Her cheeks flushed slightly, as though confused at my reference to her engagement, and she said mischievously, I don't see why he should object in the least. If you are good enough to assist me to search for my bracelet he surely ought to be much obliged to you. 
It was on the tip of my tongue to explain to that dark-eyed, handsome girl the circumstances in which I had met her lover on the sunny Mediterranean shore, yet prudence forbade me to refer to the matter, and I at once gladly accepted her invitation to investigate the curious disappearance of the body of poor Olinto's fellow-victim. What secret knowledge could be possessed by that smart, handsome girl before me? That her suspicions were in the right direction I felt confident. Yet if the dead woman had been removed and hidden by the assassin, it must have been after the discovery made by me. The fellow must have actually dared to return to the spot and carry off the victim. Yet if he had actually done that, why did he allow the corpse of the Italian to remain and await discovery? he might perhaps have been disturbed and compelled to make good his escape. If the woman was really removed the assassin must surely have had some assistance, I pointed out. He could not have carried the body very far unaided. She agreed with me, but expressed a belief that the double crime had been committed alone and unaided. "'Have you any idea as to the motive?' I asked her, eager to hear her reply. "'Well,' she answered hesitatingly, "'if the woman has fallen a victim, then the motive will become plain, but if not, then the matter must remain a complete mystery. You tell me, Miss Muriel, that you suspect the truth, and yet you deny all knowledge of the murdered man, I exclaimed in a tone of slight reproach. Until we have cleared up the mystery of the woman, I can say nothing, was her answer. I can only tell you, Mr. Gregg, that if what I suspect is true, then the affair will be found to be one of the strangest most startling and most ingenious plots ever devised by one man against the life of another. "'Then a man is the assassin, you think?' I exclaimed quickly. "'I believe so. But even of that I am not at all sure. We must first find the woman. She seemed so positive that a woman had also fallen beneath that deadly misericordia that I fell to wondering whether she, like myself, had discovered the body.' and was therefore certain that a second crime had been committed. But I did not seek to question her further, lest her own suspicions might become aroused. My own policy was to remain silent and to wait. The woman sitting before me was herself a mystery. Then, when the rain had abated, I told Davis to send her trap a little way up the high road, so that my aunt and uncle should not see her departing and after helping her on with her loose driving-coat we left by one of the servants' entrances, and I saw her into her high dog-cart, and stood bareheaded in the muddy high road as she drove away into the gloom. Rannoch Wood was already in its gold-brown glory of autumn, and as I stood with Muriel Lithcourt on the edge of it, near the spot where Olinto Santini had fallen, the morning sun was shining in a cloudless sky. True to her promise, she had sent me a note by one of the grooms asking me to help search for her bracelet, and I had driven over at once to Rannoch and found her alone awaiting me. The shooting party had gone over to a distant part of the estate, therefore we were able to stroll together up the hill and commence our investigations without let or hindrance. She was sensibly dressed in a short tweed skirt, high shooting boots, and a tam shanter hat while I also had on an old shooting-suit and carried a thick serviceable stick with which I could prod likely spots. On arrival at the woods I asked her opinion which was the most likely corner, 
but she replied, "'I know so little of this place, Mr. Gregg. You have known it for years, while this is only my first season here.' "'Very well,' I answered. "'Let us place ourselves in the position of the murderer, who probably knew the wood and wished to conceal a body in the vicinity without risk of conveying it far. On this, the left side, the wood has been thinned out for nearly half a mile, and therefore affords but little cover, while here to the right it slopes down gently to the valley and is very thick and partly impenetrable. There can, therefore, have been no two courses open to him. He would look for a likely place to the right. Let us start here and first take a small circle, examining every bush carefully. The body may have easily been pushed in beneath a thicket and well escaped observation. And so together, after taking our bearings, we started off, working our way into the thick undergrowth, beating with our sticks, and making minute examination of every bush or heap of dead leaves. In parts the great spreading trees shut out the light, rendering our investigations very difficult. But we kept on, my companion advancing with an eagerness which showed that the fact of the woman's body being there was no mere surmise. All through the morning we walked on, our hands badly torn by brambles. Even Muriel's thick gloves did not wholly protect her, and once when she received a nasty scratch across the cheek she stopped and laughingly exclaimed, "'Now, what untruth must I invent to account for that?' My own coat was badly torn, and more than once I was compelled to scramble through almost impassable thickets. Yet we found no trace of any previous intruder, and having completed our circle were compelled to admit that the gruesome evidence of the second crime did not exist at that spot. More than once I felt half inclined to tell her how I had actually discovered the body of the woman, yet on reflection I foresaw that in such circumstances silence was best. If I desired to solve the strange complicated enigma which had thus culminated in a double crime, it would be necessary for me to keep my own counsel and remain patient and watchful. When Hutchinson replied from Leghorn, and when I discovered where Olinto was employed, I might perhaps follow up the clues from that end. I might find his wife Armida and learn something of importance from her. So I was hopeful, and by reason of that hope remained silent. Muriel was untiring in her activity. Hither and thither she went, beating down the high bracken and tangles of weeds, poking with her stick into every hole and corner, and going further and further into the wood in the certainty that the body was therein concealed. For my own part, however, I was not too sanguine of success. The portion of the wood which we had already exhausted seemed to be the most likely point. To carry the body far would require assistance, and in my own mind I believed the crime to have been the work of one person. There was no path in the wood in that direction, but soon we came to a deep wooded ravine of the existence of which I was in ignorance. It was a kind of small glen through which a rivulet flowed, but the banks were covered with a thick impenetrable undergrowth out of which sprang many fine old trees, a place that had apparently existed for centuries undisturbed, for here and there a giant trunk that had decayed and fallen lay across the bank or had rolled into the rocky bed far below. This is a most likely place, declared my dainty little companion as we approached it. 
anything could easily be concealed in that high bracken down there. Let us search the whole glen from end to end, she cried with enthusiasm. Acting upon her suggestion, and without thought of luncheon, we made a descent of the steep bank until we reached the rocky bed of the stream, and then by springing from stone to stone, sometimes slipping into the water, be it said, we commenced to beat the bracken and carefully examine every bush. Progress was not swift. Once the girl, lithe and athletic as she was, slipped off a mossy stone into a hole where the water was up to her knees. But she only laughed gaily at the accident, and wringing out her wet skirt said, "'It doesn't matter in the least if we only find what we're in search of.' And then, undaunted, she went on, springing from stone to stone, and steadying herself with her stick. If we could only discover the body of the dead woman, then the rest would be clear, she declared. She would openly denounce the assassin. As we went on I revolved within my mind all the curious circumstances in connection with the amazing affair, and recollected my old friend Jack Durnford's words when we stood upon the quarter-deck of the bulwark, and I had related to him the visit of the mysterious yacht. I, too, had left one effort untried, and I blamed myself for overlooking it. I had not sought of that Bond Street photographer the name and address of the original of the photograph that had been mutilated and destroyed, that girl with the magnificent eyes that had so attracted me. The afternoon passed, and yet we were not successful. I was faint with hunger and thirst, yet my companion did not once complain. Her energy was marvelous, and yet was she not hunting down a criminal? Was she not determined to obtain such evidence as would enable her to speak the truth fearlessly, and with confidence that it would have the effect of convicting the guilty one? Slowly we toiled on up the picturesque little glen for nearly a mile and a half. Its beauties were extraordinary, and the silence was unbroken save for the musical ripple of the water over the stones. Hidden there in the center of that great wood, no one had visited it perhaps for years, not even the keepers, for no path led there, and by reason of the tangle and briars and bush it was utterly ungettable. Indeed, it had ruined our clothes to search there, and as we went on with so many windings and turns we became utterly out of our bearings. We knew ourselves to be in the center of the wood, but that was all. The sun had set, and the sky above showed the crimson of the distant afterglow, warning us that it was time we began to think of how to make our exit. We were passing around a sharp bend in the glen, where the boulders were so thickly moss-grown that our feet fell noiselessly, when I thought I heard a voice, and raising my hand we both halted suddenly. "'Someone is there,' I whispered quickly, "'behind that rock.' She nodded in the affirmative for she too had heard the voice. We listened, but the sound was not repeated. That someone was on the other side of the rock I knew, for in a tree in the vicinity a thrush was hopping from twig to twig, sounding its alarm cry and objecting to being disturbed. Therefore we crept silently forward together to ascertain who were the intruders. The only manner, however, in which to get a view beyond the huge rock that having fallen across the stream centuries ago had diverted its channel, was to clamber up its mossy sides to the summit. 
This we did eagerly and breathlessly, without betraying our presence by the utterance of a single word. To reach the side of the bolter we were compelled to walk through the shallow water, but Muriel, quite undaunted, sprang lithely along at my side, and with one accord we swarmed up the steep rock, gripping its slippery face with our hands and laying ourselves flat as we came to its summit. Then together we peered over, just, however, in time to see two dark figures of men disappearing into the thicket on the opposite side of the glen. "'Who are they, I wonder?' I asked. "'Do you recognize them?' "'No, they are strangers to me,' was her answer. "'But they seem fairly well dressed. Perhaps two sportsmen from some shooting party in the neighborhood. They've lost their way, most probably.' but I don't think they carried guns, I said. One of them had something over his shoulder. Wasn't it a gun? I thought it was. No, he wasn't carrying it like he'd carry a gun. It was short and seemed more like a spade. A spade? she gasped quickly in a low voice. A spade? Are you certain of that? No, not at all certain. We only had an instantaneous glance of them. We were unfortunately too late to see them face to face. The back of one of the men, the tall fellow in the brown suit, was broad and square, the back of someone who is familiar to me. Only for the moment I can't recollect whose it resembles. She only spoke in a whisper, fearing lest we should be discovered. I longed to scramble down and rush after the intruders. Only the belief that one of them carried a spade and the other an iron bar struck me as curious while at the same moment my eye caught sight of a portion of the ground below us at the base of the rock which had evidently been recently disturbed. "'It is a spade the man is carrying,' I cried excitedly. "'Look down there. They've just been burying something.' Her quick eyes followed the direction I indicated, and she answered, "'I really believe they have concealed something.' Then, when we had allowed the men to get beyond hearing, we both slipped down to the other side of the boulder and there discovered many signs that the earth had been hurriedly excavated and only just replaced. Quicker than it takes to describe the exciting incident which followed, we broke down the branch of a tree and with it commenced moving the freshly disturbed earth, which was still soft and easily removed. Muriel found a dead branch in the vicinity, and both of us set to work with a will, eager to ascertain what was hidden there. That something had certainly been concealed there was to us quite evident, but what it really was we could not surmise. The hole they had dug did not seem large enough to admit a human body, yet leaves had been carefully strewn over the place which, if approached from any other point than the high up one whence we had seen it, would arouse no suspicion that the ground had ever been interfered with. Digging with a piece of wood was hard and laborious work, and it was a long time before we removed sufficient earth to make a hole of any size. But Muriel exerted all her energy, and both of us worked on in dogged silence, full of wonder and anticipation. With a spade we should have soon been able to investigate, but the earth having apparently been stamped down hard prior to the last covering being put upon it, our progress was very slow and difficult. At last, a quarter of an hour or so after we had commenced, Muriel, standing in the hole and having dug her stake deeply into the ground, suddenly cried, "'Look! Look, Mr. Gregg! Why, whatever is that?' 
I bent forward as she indicated, and my eyes met an object so unexpected that I was held dumb and motionless. By what we had succeeded in discovering the mystery was increased rather than diminished. I gave vent to an ejaculation of complete bewilderment, and looked blankly into my companion's face. The amazing enigma was surely complete. End of chapter 6 Recording by Tom Weiss